listening to The Reese Show. On this show, we're trying to clarify what a good future looks like. I know we're all a bit sad about late-stage capitalism, and we want to transition to something, but we don't really know what's next. So, on the show, we interview experts about what is emerging, this beautiful future vision that we can all lean into. I hope it gives you a sense of purpose and clarity about the future. If you like the show, you know, feel free to do something about it. <laughs> you can leave us a five-star review. You can tell your friends. You can name your first child Reese. Whatever makes you happy. And if you really dig it, we have an online school called Root, where we help folks understand these root-level systems to find our route forward. We have cohorts of world-class systems thinkers that run every couple of months. So if you're interested in that, check us out at root.co. That's R-O-O-T-E dot co. Thanks. Today I interview Betsy Cooper, who is the director of the Aspen Institute's Tech Policy Hub, and they have this amazing fellowship where technologists can learn about crafting tech policy, and it's about to start. You can apply by February 22nd, and yeah, if you want to learn more about tech policy, check it out. You get 18000 bucks for a 10-week program with a great crew, so if especially if you enjoyed the episode today, definitely apply to their hub. Bye. Hello, listeners. Today, I'm excited to chat with Betsy Cooper. Betsy is the director of the Aspen Institute's Tech Policy Hub, a Y Combinator for Tech Policy. Betsy, thanks for being on the show and welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, excited to dive in. And before we kind of chat about this Tech Policy Hub, which is cool, it's you know a incubator and accelerator for getting technologists into tech policy. Before we chat about that, I just want to understand, Betsy, for you, like, how did you get into this work and what excites you about kind of the civic tech ecosystem? Well, so I first got into technology sort of coming at it from a completely different perspective, which was focused on immigration and national security. I'd spent most of my career working in, the, in that ecosystem. And I really got excited about cybersecurity while I was doing a job at the Department of Homeland Security. I was in the Office of Policy and just sort of came across a portfolio where really they didn't have anyone working on it. And I was one of the new people in the department. They were just like, hey, can you help us out? So I uh, got a few pieces of cybersecurity related work um, and really felt like in contrast to some of the other areas that I'd been working on, there was just so much space to engage. There was a lot more creativity that could be found because people hadn't been thinking about these questions in quite so robust a way for so many decades. And it just felt like a unique opportunity. Um, and so I jumped over to Berkeley, uh, worked there for a while running a cybersecurity center. And it was there that I got uh, deeper into the broader civic tech ecosystem. So we had some amazing faculty um, and researchers who hadn't been trained on how to use their amazing research in the external world. So we had one person in particular who was working on aspects of privacy and their work was really relevant for children that were being affected uh, by having their data being used uh, against US law. And for someone like that, they knew how to do the research, but they didn't really have the skill set to go you know, share that with policymakers, have influence. And so I started thinking, man, we really need to build an incubator to help people like this faculty member have that sort of impact and not just in cybersecurity, but more broadly across the tech ecosystem. And so that was sort of the, the aha moment in which I said, wow, I should go build that thing. And that's what I've been doing the past few years. Yeah, cool. And it, I think there's something really funny about what you said, which is the like classic, oh, you're like some random, you know, younger than other folks in the government. And they're like, yo, help us with this tech stuff. And you're like, I could do that. You know, um, is there a, for you thinking about, I guess I have, I want to double click on this, like, what for you like gets you excited or like, um, you know, what about civic tech? Um, like, why are you still working on it? You know, like what gets you excited about it? 
Well, so first, I think tech affects everything that we do all day long. I mean, whether it's the phone that I was scrolling through before we hopped on the line here, uh, the data that I use to purchase, you know, goods and services, it's all those things together uh, that give us an opportunity to have real influence. And so in many ways, I think I've always been passionate about policy and the more that our lives move online, the more I feel that we need to actually be engaging with the policies that affect that technology. So, so I think that's definitely part of it. And then um, I also think for me personally, having seen this disconnect between Silicon Valley, Washington, DC, and in many ways, the rest of the country, uh, you know, technologists don't necessarily understand policy and policy folks don't understand technology. So it feels like a gap that started to close a little bit, but there's tons more to do. And so that's an area that I'm really passionate about, uh, you know, uh, jumping in on. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I think let's actually stay at that meta level for a second. And, and just like, what do you see as, you know, some of those, you know, what are some of the key issues that you see in that intersection between government and technology? And what is like, a future beautiful world that you would like to see happen in five or you know 25 years? Well, so first I think you need better translation. So it's one of the first things we teach people at the Aspen Tech Policy Hub is how to uh, translate technical concepts into plain language. And, you know, I would say the same is needed for government. We use a lot of acronyms that no one can follow unless you're an insider. And so, so the first thing that my future world would have is just an ability for each side to talk at each other, to each other without talking past each other, which is what I feel happens an awful lot, whether it be in a congressional hearing or in the executive branch. Then I think, you know, I'd love to see a world in which tech policy, of which cybersecurity is a piece, though it's not the only uh, part of it, is elevated on the policy platform scale. Um, you know, I think we're starting to hear more conversations around antitrust for big tech companies or, you know, Section 230 and a bunch of these debates. Uh, but really, tech policy is sort of like the uh, left behind stepchild in many ways of other policy areas. It doesn't get the attention that education or health or, you know, immigration or any of the other areas I've worked on in my career does. And so I'd like to see tech policy get elevated as an area of priority that it be given budget and, you know, uh, staffing appropriate to the level of impact it's having on our society. Because if we don't recognize that first and foremost, we're letting it sort of uh, get away from us. And uh, and I think you need that conversation uh, between government and industry to, to move the country in the right direction. Yeah, I love that. And that kind of hits at what you were saying earlier, which is that there's so much open space here where it's just like all that needs to happen is to for this thing to be elevated more and then there's so many as you know antitrust section 230 lots of misinformation like there's so many sub things that exist under this umbrella and it's like there's so much free yeah open range or whatever for just like amazing projects to happen um with that in mind you know kind of diving into the aspen tech policy hub and just for our listeners as an overview it's yeah it's a place where technologists can come in and correct me if I'm wrong, but technologists can come in and then start to um, understand tech policy. Um, and it's like, you know, a 10 week program that helps them do that. And as a note for our listeners, you can apply by February 22nd to, um, to this program. Uh, and I'll just, I'll add the links to the show notes and stuff. Is there, I, I kind of almost don't quite get the program yet though, which is what does tech policy mean? And like, how um, can you give some specific examples of like what fellows could do? Sure. So we focus on tech policy, but I would say we're broader in that we're an incubator training technologists how to do policy. Now, our technologists come in knowing technology. So we use tech policy as a case study to give them real world uh, impact. But Really what we're doing is we're giving people a model by which if you have no experience engaging in the policy process, we teach you how to do that. So um, our program is essentially structured. And by the way, we have two programs. We have a fellowship, which is full-time and in residence. And then we have an executive leadership program, which is part-time and uh, remote. Um, the fellowship is paid. 
the executive leadership program is not, but they both follow a pretty similar structure, which is that we have a four week boot camp in which we give you lots of skills around policymaking. So we teach you how to define policy problems, how to map stakeholders, how to research policy, how to develop solutions. Uh, we also give you a bunch of practical skills, whether it be writing a policy memo or you know drafting a public comment or uh, you know actually working for a real life stakeholder uh, in a short amount of time to come up with a solution. Um, so uh, and then we fold all that into concrete examples of tech policy. So we bring in you know a speaker on tech policy 101, usually someone on cybersecurity 101, usually a conversation around what the FTC is like or FCC. And, you know, so we do spend a fair amount of time uh, digging into tech policy specifics. But the ultimate goal is that our fellows can leave and whatever they want to work on, they have the toolkit that they can actually execute. Um, and so in the first four weeks, we, we sort of teach you that toolkit. We let you practice that toolkit. And then in the second four, and in, in, sorry, in the second six weeks, uh, we let folks uh, actually explore that. So in our fellowship, you define your own policy problem and execute it. And in our executive leadership program, we work with uh, sort of clients, uh, you know, real government clients uh, to enable folks to actually get a feel for what it would be like to work in that space. So I guess our overall... Uh, perspective is that we're really looking to give people a toolkit that they can apply to policymaking. And uh, our goal is really to give them the skills and then to let them flourish however they decide to deploy that toolkit. Cool. Yeah, I like that. I think there's something funny there, which is this policy memo thing. As For me as a non-policy person, but when I was in the uh, Boston Educational Industrial Complex, MIT, Harvard, et cetera, uh, interacting with folks at the Kennedy Center and like learning that like policy memos are they you, and you again you know better than I do what like what are policy memos like the main output of like of, of getting policy done or like how do what role do they play in that ecosystem Ah, you're you're giving a sneak preview of a lecture we're okay. actually giving this week in the executive leadership program so um so a policy memo is an important output, and it's important because essentially what it is, it's a summary of what a problem is and how you want to solve it. Um, and by the way, the key point uh, in contrast to the way we often work is you don't want to just like tell the story. You want to lead with your solution up front, which uh, a lot of tech folks actually find really challenging. Um, but so a policy memo is a great way to describe how you see a problem what different solutions you've taken into account and why you've selected or are advocating for a particular one. And so we always ask uh, our fellows to practice this because it's a skill that almost, you know, almost any job that you take in the policy ecosystem, whether it be in government or at a company, you're going to have to deal with that toolkit. But actually, one thing that I think is really unique about the hub is that we don't stop there. Um, we actually think that a policy memo is only one type of output and it is best coupled with others. So one of the biggest challenges for policymakers generally is that they're really oversubscribed. They're generalists. They don't have time to dig into all the different aspects of a problem that the expert might dig into. And so the best way to have influence over a stakeholder like that is to actually give them things that they can use right away. So that could be an infographic, that could be an operational plan, it could be a playbook, it could be a website, it could be an app. Uh, there are lots of things that you could do to actually not just write a policy memo describing what you think should be done, but actually to show somebody how it should be done. And I think that's one of the key differences in the way that we teach policy is that we want people to know how to do the policy memo, but we want them to couple that with the actual show and tell of how to actually change something. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think it was going to lead to a question that I had, which is like, I could imagine being a, you know, builder, computer science type, or, you know, a developer type and come into the program and then be like, oh man, like, my output should be some kind of live code, you know, um, and act, and then like, oh no, actually, what my output should be is this policy memo. But what you're saying is actually, it's a the policy memo is a set of tools, and that something like live code could be a part of that. It's both. Um, so we often have folks, uh, and you can check out our website aspentechpolicyhub.org/backslash/projects to see the sort of projects that we've published. And so we have projects where their main output is a report or a, or a memo. 
Uh, but we also have projects where their output is a, a demo website and a description of how that could change a particular policy problem. We have projects where they've built a form or they've built an operational plan for how to create a new program. So, um, so sometimes you want a policy memo almost as a cover to go on top of the other thing that you've built in order to describe what it is and how it works, because this may be counterintuitive to a policymaker. Um, sometimes you want just a memo. That's the simplest way to build something. Sometimes you build uh, an entirely new thing uh, and you don't need the memo at all. Um, so we really try to give people the toolkit and then we help them figure out in the specific situation that they're dealing with, what is the best way to deploy that tool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. Is there, this kind of leads me to a question of like something like Y Combinator, their demo day is all focused around essentially like weekly growth of revenue. So like what's your MRR, like make sure that thing's growing week over week. Is there a, you know, if I think about being a policy person, let's give an example from one of your last cohorts like this, you know, climate change accounting uh, for cloud services to know how much uh, climate uh, or how much carbon offsets you would need to do based off how much like compute you're using. Is there or like, yeah, how is there like a, a metric that folks can think about when they're trying to affect policy? You know, if it's not revenue, what is it like getting the policy through? But how does one measure that? Well, so you're pointing out a great thing, which is that that's one of the key differences. We have many similarities to a Y Combinator type incubator, but what we do create is a pitch opportunity. So at a Y Combinator, you're pitching funders. Here, you're pitching actual policymakers. So we ask each of our fellows to identify the stakeholders that could most and best implement their ideas. And then we ask them to actually go out and engage with those stakeholders directly um, to try to have that influence. So, uh, you know, uh, back in the days when we could actually fly people to D.C., this was a lot easier, frankly. Um, <laughs> but uh, there's, you know, nevertheless, the model is that you, you know, need to identify key stakeholders and seek to go directly influence them. So, you know, we've had uh, fellows go to. Uh, you know, DC to meet with the Department of Homeland Security. We've had fellows go to the city of New York and talk to them. Uh, fellows talk to the city of Oakland. You know, so those are all examples of engagements. Um, in terms of metrics, then, you know, I think a lot of times you're you're looking for an advocacy plan that tells us how are you going to take the stuff you've built and make asks of the individuals that you're trying to get to change their behavior and what's the path that you're going to achieve that. So that I guess would be the equivalent of like the going to market strategy. Right. And then uh, what we're looking for is have you concretely identified people to engage with? Do you have a pitch ready to go for them? Is it, you know, is it concrete? Is it uh, clear? Um, do you actually make that trip? What happens afterwards? Do you have a plan for how to follow up? So, you know, we try to, you know, sort of give them the opportunities for success, but there is no equivalent to market value that we can pinpoint. Instead, what you're looking for is for them to have defined a type of change that they're looking to see and that they have a clear plan to execute that change. Got it. So I, th I think I understand it, which is, yeah, you have, so I'm building some kind of, let's say, yeah, I want to get the um, folks in, I want to make a policy that requires, and actually this is maybe happening in California, maybe as a result of your fellow, um, the to have companies over a certain market cap need to carbon offset their emissions of from their uh, the things that they do. Um, if I wanted to do that, then I would go out and I would say, okay, I would understand the stakeholders that I would need to chat with, like in um, Washington or what have you, maybe the Department of Energy, I don't really know who does these things. Um, and then I would need to uh, go and have a, like the thing that I would share internally with the hub would be some kind of advocacy plan for how I would connect, how I would convince them or is the advocacy plan upon like the change that it would make in terms of like carbon offsets? So the advocacy plan is more the actual way that you're going to achieve your goal. Okay, so cool. let's say you set a goal and um, maybe I'll use a different example. Yeah, how about yeah. a real life? Um, so we had a team of fellows that identified uh, that older adults were getting scammed online in very uh, concrete ways. And so they wanted to have an effect on that. So that was them defining a problem. 
So they did a bunch of research and they uncovered that those older adults uh, were having trouble reporting when they had been scammed. Uh, there were like 15 different websites that you had to use. And one of the websites had, uh, you know, grayed out boxes that the older adults would think were active and they'd keep trying to click on it. Or, you know, it, it wasn't optimized for mobile. Uh, the font was too small. You can imagine all sorts of things that were wrong. So they narrowed their problem to say, okay, we want to fix the way that older adults report when they've been scammed online, and we want to influence the stakeholders who, at, in that case, I believe were like the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security had some of these forms online. Okay. So what they did was they built two types of outputs. So the first set of outputs is like the what I call policy outputs or like what you actually do. So that would be an example of a new form. So they built a new form that could be better accomplishing the goals of having older adults uh, go online. And then they also built a sort of a strategy for how U.S. government agencies could better design for older adults so that future forms wouldn't suffer from the same consequences. So that's sort of like the policy side of things. It's the stuff that you want the stakeholder to deal with. But then you also need an advocacy plan because I think too often, and this is a problem that I see with some, you know, uh, DC think tanks in particular, is that you have a great idea, you put it on the internet and you hope that someone's <laughs> going to someday Google that great idea and bring it, you know, to market, like you, what you're missing is essentially your go-to-market strategy for your idea. Um, and so we call that an advocacy plan. An advocacy plan is sort of your roadmap for, okay, I have this great idea for this new form. How am I going to execute that? And so for our fellows, it includes things like writing an op-ed to call attention to the issue, flying to D.C. to hold a meeting with folks, coming up with a follow-up strategy in which maybe you share stories that older adults uh, experience to try to, you know, have, uh, if it's a congressional thing, you would want uh, um, constituents to reach out. So Whatever the problem is, we seek them to come up with an internal strategy and then external outputs to achieve that strategy. So those would be things like the op-ed or, you know, a infographic or something like that. So you sort of take these three things, the policy, uh, you know, the policy document, the policy output, the, you know, sort of advocacy plan, and then advocacy outputs to achieve the plan. And that's sort of the ultimate goal is to help people build all those things and then take it out there and try it. And like Y Combinator, we have a high tolerance for failure, just like with many of the Y Combinator startups, a lot of our policy projects will not achieve their goals, but we're achieving something else, which I think, you know, just as Y Combinator is training people how to build startups, we're training people how to have policy impact. And whether or not the first startup they try, the first policy output they try succeeds, they now have a toolkit they can deploy. And for us, that's a good chunk of the purpose. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think there's something and funny think about how kind of, uh, yeah, how uh, opaque to someone like me that kind of process for achieving policy outputs is. And even just hearing you talk about it becomes increasingly clear. And I think that there's, it's funny because I wonder if like, I'm thinking about like what the kind of, do you think that the current setup is optimal? And I guess what I mean by that is I can imagine a different version of reality. And thank you for the good specific example with that form where it's like, it would be cool if we could somehow create, people could build different forms and then they could like post them online or something. And then like they, I guess it's interesting that what you need to do is in order to get the form changed, you need to go to that department in that policymaker and have the like team there change the form. And I'm wondering, I guess that that makes some sense, but I'm, I'm, it just makes me think about other kinds of like more crowdsourced ways to kind of uh, change the public infrastructure that we have. Does that make any sense? Or do you, do you think the current system is pretty good? Well, so I think there's always opportunities for more crowdsourcing. We actually, in our first cohort, had a fellow that created an actual system in which legislation could essentially be crowdsourced. He developed a tool that would allow you to sort of upvote or downvote different phrases in a in a written document. So it could work for legislation or it could work for a co-op board trying to develop their new principles. So, so we've got fellows that have actually tackled sort of the underlying tools of policymaking. Um, how do you get people more directly involved? Um, 
I think in practice, though, there actually are a lot of tools that do exist to accomplish goals like that. And one of the challenges has been none of them have really gained significant market share in that, you you know, if you think about going to engage with your local city council or state government, you know, you're probably still going to be submitting a PDF document <laughs> into the ether and hoping for the best. Um, so, so I would argue that, you know, one of the types of projects that we tried to, you know, support, but that need even more support is trying to get government to adopt creative ways of allowing for more, uh, you know, participation. Um, and if we could see more of that, I think that would be great. So we call those sort of structural projects. So, you know, the example I gave you a second ago is very much a practical policy project in the sense that like there's a specific policy that you want to change, but there's also systemic changes like with participation that would make a lot of different policies better. And so that's uh, an example of a type of, you know, sort of more systemic uh, approach that we might take as well. Yeah, I like that. I think as, and just as a note for the listeners on the show, we kind of focus a lot on those systemic changes. So I kind of want to stay on those for a second, Betsy. And I think there's like, I mean, and I'll, maybe I'll provide a little bit of skepticism here, which is, as you noted there, there's the kind of the PDF, um, you know, interacting with some government services, you still need to do the PDF thing. And it from and, and thinking about that, and then thinking about something that I saw you shared about how like the percentage of the federal workforce that is under the age of thirty, it's like you know three percent is under the age of thirty, and you know uh, some large percent, maybe like seventy percent, I forget the numbers, like around the age of sixty-five. And I think there's a so I guess there's like a what what needs to change, I guess, from a systemic level in order to um, be able to get these uh, in order to kind of I don't know make government work for the people or something. Sorry, what needs to change systemically? Yeah, what needs to change systemically in order to... I'm just like, I, I get this feeling of like, you know, pushing up against the like great behemoth that is, uh, whether it's local governments or state governments, but especially federal governments. And like the, just like the rate of change, it just feels like difficult and slow. And so I kind of feel, I am excited by this work that you're doing. I'm also like, wow, is that actually going to like move the needle within the federal government? Well, so first, uh, slowness is not always a negative. Yeah. Um, so, for instance, I think we saw with some of the more extreme positions in the last presidential administration, many people were glad yeah. for some of the slow processes yeah. of government. And I'd also say systemically, there actually are amazing ways to participate even without a change. So many people might not know, for instance, that every regulation, which is basically the equivalent of an executive branch legislation, every regulation that goes out by the U.S. federal government has to be opened for notice and comment with some very small exceptions. And what that essentially means is that every person, you and me and anyone else out there, has the opportunity to comment on regulations as they're going through the process. And the federal government has to respond, at least in uh, groupings, to every single comment that's received. So you know, you actually do have the chance to move the needle if you choose to participate, even, and, you know, it's a, it's an amazing process to watch it behind the scenes when you get more than 700 comments that have to be uh, addressed. So, um, so it, it's a real challenge, but, you know, even without a change in anything, there are opportunities like that all the time to participate in government. And one of the most uh, significant obstacles is just that most people don't know. Yeah. They don't know that they can participate in that way. But I think what you're pointing to is a broader systemic challenge, which is that uh, the wheels of government seem to move slowly and there's an increasing skepticism that you can have an impact on anything. So uh, a listener might be listening to me and say, yeah, in theory, you can comment, but everybody already knows what's going to happen. And I'd say, you know, it, just like anything else, it depends. Sometimes that may be true, for sure. But in other cases, you're and you know, at least one of the regulations that I worked on in government, this was the case. You, you had a rough idea of where you thought you wanted to go, but you were genuinely interested in feedback and comment from people more knowledgeable than yourselves in order to have a real impact. And so um, so I guess I'm not as cynical about the prospects of having a real impact because I have seen random people submit comments and actually change the direction of a particular regulation. And I also guess that um, I think that if we're clever, we could use even more tools to try to, you know, uh, to make a change. So. Yeah. So thank, I mean, I, I agree with your pushback that speed is not always uh, a good thing and that 
that's kind of the beauty of the government is that it can be kind of a, like the institutional processes are amazing in that they kind of get to a result slowly. And that is really, really, you know, with the election as a, as a primary example here in a kind of decentralized manner. And that's just kind of a beautiful, um, a beautiful kind of stable thing, which is, which is really helpful. I think is there, this kind of makes me think though, like, do you, are there any, um, when you think about the U S government versus other governments around the world, are there other governments that are kind of shining stars, uh, for civic tech and like, or do you have any examples for things that other countries around the world are doing well? Well, so one that comes to mind, I did a tiny bit of work for them way back in the day, was the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit in the United Kingdom. So they actually had an office that was just a place where they would get really smart people together to try to come up with innovative ways to approach government. So um, so in some ways, this is more civic innovation than civic tech, um, although I believe that a lot of what they came up with actually does relate to tech, but they would you know, even come up with uh, ways to think about how best to, you know, have impact through policy memos. Like they would actually come up with recommendations on things like that. Um, our government is so overworked, overrun, too many things on the plate. We never take the time for that strategy. It is really hard to find time to think about those broader questions. And so we're often running way behind uh, in terms of trying to figure out long-term issues. Um, and so I think we've seen that a lot with the pandemic preparedness. And this you know, is true for state and locals as much as it is for the federal government. Like we should have known that there could be a pandemic you know, based on what happened in 1918. And we should have had a clear set of metrics for how we might decide when to shut down businesses and how to engage that. And we should have had a clear plan for how to reopen if there was a vaccine, if the vaccine is delayed by a year, if, you know, like there, there were clear metrics that we could have deployed. And I feel like instead, because we don't focus enough on strategy, on innovation, on trying to change the structures of policymaking, that's a key way that, that we're sort of falling behind. And I do want to clarify one other thing, because I don't want to be on the record as defending uh, in all cases, the slowness mm-hmm, of the mm-hmm. government processes. I do think that there's plenty of cases, including for some of the regulations that I worked on in government, where it's just a case of not having enough staff or not, frankly, having enough willpower to you know, do the innovative things to get across the finish line. And I think we could do a lot better on that front. But what I will say is that part of that slowness, not all of it, but part of that is due to checks and balances that help ensure that, you know, radical positions can't just easily get taken from one side to the other. And it's that sort of radicalness that I do think is a positive in our system. And so let's eliminate the, you know, the sort of slowness on the innovation side, but let's keep the checks and balances that ensure that our democracy continues to function as intended. Great. Yeah. I like that uh, distinction and thank you for making it. Is there something that what you just talked about with the pandemic preparedness thing makes me think of is, and and I'm not sure exactly because you have to interact with both parties in government. So I'm not sure exactly how uh, you will be able to answer this question, but thinking about, you know, the Obama administration and then into the Trump administration and now into the Biden administration. And I'm just thinking about like the you know, stuff like the U.S. digital response and the U.S. digital service and, you know, how, what it will be like to interact with a, and for me, you know, as an outsider, um, seeing the Trump administration is very, um, both conservative, but also mostly just like kind of incompetent at a surprising amount of things. Do you, are you seeing, like in your time being with all three of those administrations now, it's like, Do you see, like, how much of an impact will this transition from Trump to Biden have uh, around this stuff? Well, so first, I'm so glad you brought up the U.S. digital response, because uh, uh, that was an organization that sort of got developed uh, and uh, was uh, led by Raylene Young, one of our fellows from our last cohort. So Raylene is an amazing example of someone who really got passionate about an issue that she couldn't even have thought of when she came into the hub and really worked with a number of other partners, including a bunch of friends of the hub like Corey Zark and Jen Palka to come up with an idea for how to do something about it and to build a new institutional structure for impact. So if anything gives me hope, it's stories like that where, you know, neither Raylene nor I, when she put in her application to the hub could have imagined 
where the world would go or what would interest her. But I'm so proud of her, Jessica Cole, and a number of our other fellows for really hitting the COVID-19 moment and coming up with new ways to have impact. Um, in terms of the broader policy questions, um, you know, it's going to be interesting. So many of the folks that Biden is bringing in are alums of the Obama administration. So I think if you're going to see anything, what you're probably going to see is what feels like a bit of a reversion, at least in the first little uh, while, to as if the Trump administration didn't happen. You're going to see regulations getting pulled back. You're going to see changes in policy to essentially return to what they were before the Trump administration came um, into effect. And so that's going to be kind of a an interesting question is just how effective are they going to be at making those changes? Um, what I think is even greater now, though, than it was during the Obama administration is that the civic tech movement, thanks to the support of the Ford Foundation, of, you know, Amidiar and Schmidt and many others, um, Craig Newmark, of course, like civic tech has really taken off as an area since the last, since the end of the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. And organizations like the U.S. Digital Response have really provided places for civic technologists to gather and to have an impact. Hopefully the hub is another one of those places. We now have a hundred alums of our own, right? So, um, so I think that there's an amazing ability to take that groundswell of interest in having an impact and to parlay that into more effectiveness um, in this administration. So a number of us have been working on a project uh, called the United States of Tech or uh, 10K Techies, meaning we want to get 10,000 technologists into the next administration. And this is a nonpartisan effort. So um, it's more about there's more to be done by technologists. There's been a tremendous interest by technologists in getting more involved in civic tech. Let's create homes for these folks. And so I'm really excited to see once we get past this first, you know, sort of 100-day sprint to change the direction of COVID-19 and many other things where that sort of initiative goes. Yeah, that's cool. I think that, I mean, A, uh, amazing work by uh, Raylene and just, yeah, USDR is a great thing. And I think that it is, it shows what you were talking about before, which is that Raylene went through, or if I understand it correctly, like Raylene went through your program and she had a um, desire to she, she 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 had a different project, but she learned kind of that policy, tech policy toolbox, and then she used that tech policy toolbox on USDR. Is that kind of right? That that's my understanding for sure. Um, and you know, it was really week nine and ten of the hub programming when that sort of opportunity kind of uh, came to be. So so it was a true moment in which you know. You know, our program was wrapping up in March, uh, you know, everything was going off at that time. And rather than just going home and sitting on her laurels, really connected with a number of other stakeholders, um, some of which I think she met through the hub, some of which I think she knew prior. And and this amazing new thing was founded. And uh, and I do think that she would say that some of the tools that the hub gave her set her up to succeed in that type of role. Yeah, that's cool. I think, and what you're talking about with the um, emergence of civ the civic tech ecosystem, you know, and as you know, as funded by, you know, a variety of nonprofits, that that ecosystem is, it's cool to hear from an insider like you that that uh, that's so much po more powerful now than it was 10 years ago or, you know, or five years ago. And so I think it'll be interesting. I guess it's like, it's tough to, as you said, I, and I like the goal too, of like, we want 10,000, you know, tech enabled or techie folks within the government. That seems like it's kind of, it's, it's tough for me to even imagine the kinds of um, impacts that that will have on like the day-to-day -day life of folks. But do you have any in instincts on like what kind of like emergent impacts or whatever that will have just like a more tech enabled administration? You know, I don't know yet. Um, and partially, I actually think that, and somewhat understandably so, but the Biden administration hasn't actually brought in a lot of techies yet. I mean, for instance, if you try to name the leadership at the Office of Science and Technology Policy, most of the folks that have gone in so far have been on the science side. Um, the tech side hasn't really been announced as much. Um, a lot of roles like uh, chief technology officer, um, chief information officer at various agencies haven't been announced. So, so I think we're sort of still in a in a holding uh, pattern, waiting for a lot of these opportunities to arise. Um, and as they arise, um, and as people start going into those roles, that's when we're really going to see what impact um, 
this can have. Mm -hmm. One big change, though, we uh, work with a lot of uh, partners, including a great organization called the Tech Talent Project with uh, Jennifer Anastasoff and Cass Madison and a bunch of others. And they've done an amazing job identifying gaps in uh, government where uh, government agencies would be better served having technologists in roles. Um, And so they've come up with a bunch of priority categories of jobs and are really focused on trying to identify, you know, folks and uh, role descriptions and things to create those opportunities. So what I do think will happen uh, as, you know, over the next year, those positions get posted, get filled, et cetera, you're going to see much more tech knowledge in government across the board than existed before. And I think that has tremendous potential to have impact. Um, On the other hand, anytime you change uh, directions, as will be a change for a lot of the folks that take on those roles, there's going to be a learning curve. There's going to be some time getting used to government. uh, And so I do think that we should be, you know, a little bit cautious about how quickly we're going to see immediate impacts and changes in the way that government works, just because it's going to take time. If you bring in all sorts of new folks without those experiences, understanding the inner mechanisms of government takes time. And that's part of the reason why we're spending so much time training people through our executive leadership program and otherwise is precisely to try to help where we can provide some shortcuts. Cool. Yeah, like it. Is there what you're talking about with like the, you know, um, U.S. Uh, U.S. Tech, U.S. Office of Science or U.S. Science and Technology Office? What's the, office of, the Office of Science and Technology. Thank you. Office? Thank you. Thank you. The Office of Science and Technology. And what's the last piece? I think it's policy. Policy. Thank you. OSTP. Yeah. I, I was like, I know the acronym, but um, that uh, and how the, you know, CTO and the CIO haven't yet been determined yet. I mean, everybody's all focused on the pandemic and I kind of want to, you know, hone in on that for a quick second here, which is, you know, there's a, and this is leading to a conversation about, you know, um, you know, networked participation more generally. And I think that there's, you know, there's some kind of, there's, there's kind of what I see maybe the form that y'all are taking, which is, t- um, you know, hooking folks into the kind of government API, giving them the toolbox they need to create policy memos, give documents, do those kind of things in order to kind of make government uh, better in a variety of ways. And there's also another version of like providing for public goods, which is just like kind of out in the open in a kind of a weird kind of crowdsourced networked way. And I want to give the example here of the vaccinate California folks where they kind of just were like, hey, the California system right now for vaccinations is like not very good. Like we need to, the government hasn't done much on it. Like let's just like get a bunch of random people together to start to provide a place where folks can find out how to get vaccinations. Is there, um, is, is like that as like a prototypical example, is that like a good thing, for an example or template for us to be building off of? Um, or is like another way to get at the same things instead of going through government, just kind of like doing it in the open? I mean, so first, I think when government is done well, it should be out in the open anyways. I'm not big on secrecy behind closed doors, mm-hmm. requiring people to request freedom of information and get information. So so I, I don't know that I think that those two things are mutually exclusive, that you have to either have government or openness. The best type of government should be open to. Um, I think crowdsourcing is a phenomenal way to get new ideas. Um, one of uh, my mentors is Tom Khalil, who formerly was in the Obama White House, mm-hmm. and he's um, really advocated for sort of challenge competitions in which you provide opportunities for people to try to seek to respond to a particular problem or question and give them opportunities to come up with creative responses and, uh, you know, ideally provide some funding or other support uh, if they succeed. And I love that because I think that's one of the best ways to get unique um, ideas and uh, to allow them sort of to compete against each other out in the open. Uh, But you can do that in service of government just as easily as you can outside of government. I think where we really fall down is if we stick to the only the old ways of doing things and don't try to, you know, take into account those innovations. Um, Then on the other side, though, I guess I'd say when it comes to operations and implementation, you know, there are tons of amazing programs now, Um, you know, the Presidential Innovation Fellows, the U.S. uh, um, Digital Service, there's, uh, you know, a new digital core being developed for younger folks. So there's going to be lots more opportunities for techies to go into government. And I think oftentimes 
there's an assumption that you can just jump in and break the system and put it back together and it'll be okay. And unfortunately or fortunately, like there, there are rules, there are laws, there, there are some things that, you know, it's just not quite as easy as it might be with a startup and some venture capital funding. Um, and not to say that that's easy either, but at least the structures are less clean, right? So, so I do think that there's a risk that if we try to just sort of crowdsource ideas um, and we push that on to the operationalization of those ideas, that we lose the opportunity to take into account all those existing structures and to make sure that, for instance, the law is followed appropriately. So, um, so I guess what I'm saying is uh, for ideas generation, I think that's awesome. Uh, but I also, if, you know, there are techies listening who eventually go into government, you know, listen to the people that have been there for a while, understand the structures that exist and make sure that you fully hear why they exist and who they're protecting before you assume automatically that breaking them is the best way forward. Yeah, I like that. I think that there's, because I think a lot of, and both I have to some extent this natural inclination. I think that there's this, you know, the powerful, like move fast and break things, you know, or the, or the powerful in the kind of not necessarily positive or negative sense, but like can often be negative. And so then coming into this world and being like, oh, we'll just build whatever and it'll be fine. It's like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. You might need to like, think about the like and Robin Hood is a great great example of this where it's like they just move fast moved fast and they didn't have the you know the the money that they needed all these things and so it had these impacts that were were greater than they had imagined because they were just kind of a hyper growth startup and so I think that there's and, yeah. and on the government side now that you you know I I saw that they might be under SEC investigation because when they made the decision to shut down the trading they may not have fully contemplated like the effects of what that could mean under the SEC, right? So I'm no SEC expert, but that's an ex a great example of like, you know, you were really open, you moved really quickly, but there may be a good reason why there is a regulation that prevents you from changing certain types of trading, for instance, on a dime. You could see how that could be abused, for instance. Mm -hmm. So, um, so you know, I don't have the perfect answers, but I do think that, you know, that's one reason why, for any techies that do move into government, I really urge them to listen as well as try to move quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, staying on the kind of uh, GameStop thing for a quick second, is there, and I don't know the, the kind of correct version of this question, but there's, you know, there's these online movements and whether it's something like GameStop or whether it is, you know, the stop the steal kind of hashtag and the, that leading to the insurrection and riot stuff, there's, you know, Black Lives Matter and Me Too as these kind of like bottom up movements on the internet. How... It, 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 there's an interesting, or like, do you see those kind of um, pushing, I don't know if pushing back on is the right term, but like, how should the government or how should, you know, the civic technologists kind of think about these movements and how to both enable movements, but like not enable mobs or something like that? Well, you know, um, and I'm not an expert in this particular space, so I'm not sure I'm the best person to advise civic technologists <laughs> on this. But what I do think is that, uh, you know, this all comes down to understanding the full implications of the thing that you're building. So we bring in a lot of folks uh, from big tech companies who come into our program in part because they're disillusioned with the way that their product is going. Um, you know, so they'll have, uh, you know, some sort of civic team uh, that's saying, hey, is that a problem for social justice or racism or something? And then the growth team will sort of override uh, and uh, the concerns will sort of get shuffled underneath the table. Um, but, and, and that's the best case scenario is at least you're having that debate. I think in many cases, uh, line coders don't actually even fully understand the ramifications of the thing they're being asked to put together. They just, you know, are pulling off a request uh, from a list every day, coding the thing that they're requested to do, and then going, you know, on to their... Uh, to the rest of their day. So, um, so I think that there's an opportunity uh, for companies, for civic technologists, wherever they live to sort of, you know, push harder on the values underlying the decisions that big companies are making and small companies. Hey, I think Robinhood should serve as an example that this isn't just about the big five tech companies, that it's a much broader ecosystem issue where we're, you know, moving back and moving fast and breaking things does not mean that we need to set aside our values. Um, and that means asking lots of questions. It means, you know, grappling with difficult decisions. It means speaking up if you feel like something's wrong. 
And then it means trying to support an ecosystem that changes the way the world works so that the incentive isn't just for growth. You know, I love the idea of B corporations and, you know, companies that are set up not just to do no evil, but to actually do good. Um, and so I would love to see, you know, uh, I don't know what the government structure should look like, but I think that increasingly people of, you know, our generation want to see that their work has meaning beyond just doing the job. And so we're at a unique moment in which uh, I think you can push for that uh, within Silicon Valley and beyond. Beautiful. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so as a kind of wrap up question here, we're going to go into the overrated, underrated section where I just ask you, I name a thing and you tell me whether you think it's overrated or underrated. Uh, what do you think that um, uh, healthcare.gov, do you think that that website is overrated or underrated? Uh, originally overrated, now probably underrated. Exactly, exactly. It had a bad like uh, meme, and now it's probably pretty good. Um, what do you think about the? And this is something that you know a lot about um, that we didn't touch on too much today. But like the impact of like government hacks, they always seem like a big thing in the media. But I'm not really sure. Are they underrated or overrated? Uh, they are definitely underrated. I think we need to see more attention being paid to government hacks. Um, so stay tuned. <laughs> what a quick bonus question on that. Like what, um, uh, why are they underrated? Like what, um, what impact does it have? <laughs> well, I mean, I think we're going to find out that much of, uh, the most confidential information that has been filed in court cases, for instance, has just been, uh, you know, essentially given up to foreign adversaries. <laughs> So even if you don't care anything about government, if you're involved in a company and you have intellectual property that you ever filed under seal in a court case, that's a big deal. So, uh, so if you care about nothing else, uh, that that's a good one to show why government hacks can matter. Great. Beautiful. Um, thank you. Uh, and then a final question. I saw that you were into Tottenham. Do you, um, Hyung Moon San, uh, the, the striker, is he underrated or overrated? He's so underrated, and our coach is a bit overrated. Okay, okay. See ya, coach. Uh, what's the, is it? What's the coach's name again? Mourinho. Oh, say it one more time. Um, it's uh, I'm like blanking on how to pronounce it. It's a Portuguese name, uh, Mourinho. Oh, Jose like, Mourinho or something like yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's funny. Um, you're calling me out. My French pronunciations won't uh, won't help. But I I think he I I liked our previous coach uh, Pochettino, who's now with PSG. So mm -hmm. I keep hoping he'll make his way back. <laughs> nice. um, beautiful. Well, again, thank you for coming on today. Uh, and. Um, Betsy, I guess for our listeners, as a note for folks, yeah, it's uh, April or sorry, February 22nd. Do you want to say a little bit more about how they can apply or what, what programs to apply to? Sure. Just, yeah, go to our website, aspentechpolicyhub.org. Uh, just click on the apply, apply button. Um, it's a pretty simple application and you can apply both to our fellowship and to our executive leadership program. We also have a number of webinars coming up next week and the week after. So if you haven't learned enough and want to learn more about the nitty gritty of the program, come join us at a quick webinar, uh, learn the thing, and please apply. Yeah, beautiful. And I just, yeah, just for the listeners, just to reemphasize, I think there's something, I think the USDR, the Raylene example is just a beautiful version of this where it's like, hey, if you want to get leveled up if you're a, as you said if you're a technologist who it feels like a lack of meaning in your job because you're working on helping people click on ads or whatever um you can become a healthy member of this burgeoning you know civic tech ecosystem and you can do that by leveling yourself up for 10 weeks and um then having a toolbox that you can use for yeah when covid 2 comes you will be able to help out with the usdr for that and we pay uh, people to do it. So uh, so if there's no other reason, you can get paid to learn how to have that level of impact. Yep. Not a bad deal. Beautiful. Um, well, thanks again, Betsy. And goodbye, everybody. Thanks, Reese. Have a great one. <laughs>